Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Behind the Money, we've been having a hard time describing what this moment means, what the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey mean. It's a conversation I've been having with our producer, Oluwa Kemi Aladisui. Right, Amy. Um, what does it mean when a cop kneels on a man's neck, pinning him down for eight minutes and 46 seconds as he cries, I can't breathe? What does it mean when plainclothes police officers get a warrant to enter an apartment without knocking, use a battering ram to bash through the door and kill the young woman living there? What does it mean when they aren't charged, prosecuted, or even put on administrative leave? What does it mean when law enforcement in a small town in Georgia don't arrest or charge two men for chasing and gunning down a young jogger until video of that murder goes viral? What do these deaths mean to their mothers and fathers, their children and friends, and the communities they left behind? How do these deaths tally with the deaths of Philander Castile, Sandra Bland, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, and then countless others whose deaths don't rise to the level of a national conversation? And so with the protests of the last few weeks, which have erupted in every single U.S. state and in countries around the world, this question of police authority, and in some cases impunity, is being reexamined. And that put Oluwakemi and I onto another question about the role the federal government, particularly funding from the federal government, has played out at the local level. This is Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keene. It's not the first time that people have protested against police brutality. But something that does feel new about this moment is how quickly demands for justice and accountability have coalesced around one clear policy position, the idea of defunding the police. Law enforcement is among the biggest line items in municipal budgets in many large U.S. cities, but activists say that spending all that money does little to keep the public safe. And while police funding is largely a local issue, and around 80% of local police budgets are spent on personnel, policing in the U.S. has been irrevocably shaped by federal intervention, and that's left the delicate balance of power and money unchecked. On this episode, we're getting a bit of an economic history lesson that is on the evolution of federal funding of local law enforcement. And we're going to look at what that means for today's calls to defund the police. Federal intervention in local policing started back in the 1930s. The federal government recovered more quickly than local governments from the basically disastrous reputational effect of failed prohibition policies. It made all law enforcement look bad, um, but the feds recovered more quickly. That's Rachel Harmon. She's a law professor and the director of the Center for Criminal Justice at the University of Virginia. 
local law enforcement was perceived as totally incompetent. So much so that when President Hoover appointed the Wickersham Commission, which studied crime and law enforcement, it issued two reports on the police. The first report demonstrated the aggressive way police approached interrogations and the extent to which they made illegal arrests. The second report questioned the effectiveness of law enforcement. And the first words of that report said the general failure of the police to detect and arrest criminals guilty of all these serious crimes has caused a total loss of public confidence in the police in our country. After that, Congress authorized several programs to try to start to improve local policing. And the idea was to provide additional training and help professionalize law enforcement. While these reforms brought welcome change to local police departments, the professionalization of the police, in some, codified racial norms of the period. More broadly, police departments throughout the beginning of the 20th century are seen as a way of maintaining social order, which means the social status quo, rather than protecting all people equally. In the South, police enforced Jim Crow segregation. And in northern cities, law enforcement enforced de facto segregation. Veshla May Weaver is a professor of political science and sociology at Johns Hopkins University. In the north, when white ethnics are having trouble with violence and crime in their neighborhoods, the response of the progressive reformers in the north basically extend aid and make this argument that, well, their criminality is due to poor social conditions. And once we give them a ladder of opportunity, we won't see the criminality. Contrast that with how Black vice was treated as part of Black character. It wasn't, a, a, you know, that they didn't have opportunity and very, very poor neighborhood conditions. It became conflated with their character And the argument became, well, we ought not extend aid until they can fix their criminality. It's an idea that was once again persuasive as Black Americans struggled for freedom in the 1950s and 1960s. This is kind of a foundation of the later calls for, you know, how we can't respond to agitation for equal rights because that will simply bring a crime wave to our urban cities. Around 1964, you've got 63% of the white American public strongly believing that there is, quote, too much concern with equality and too little with law and order. Congress passes the most sweeping civil rights bill ever to be written into the law and thus reaffirms the conception of equality for all men that began with Lincoln and the Civil War. And so conservatives in Congress that had just lost in this nation's most historic piece of civil rights legislation Ultimately, one of the ways that they regain agenda control, political agenda control, is that they argue that crime legislation will be this panacea to racial unrest. They argue that Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs and civil rights legislation rewarded rioters and sort of coddled criminals. They begin to argue that the right to be free from violence is, as Naomi Murakawa has shown, the first civil right. Right. So they try to redefine and reframe the issue, not as one of racial segregation or racial equality, but as one of law and order and vice. 
And so Johnson responds by announcing this war on crime in 1965. And then the even larger Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968. And both of those funnel an enormous amount of money now into local law enforcement, often towards quite aggressive policing. The same people who we would today think of as being, you know, small government, they are calling for the federal government to begin dispersing what ultimately becomes the equivalent of $28 billion in state crime control. This is when we get the funding of SWAT teams and sting operations and uh, real intrusive policing, especially in Black urban communities. The Safe Streets Act ends up overturning three Supreme Court decisions. It issues strong penalties for engaging in riots. It relaxes prohibitions on wiretapping and electronic surveillance. So the no-knock warrant that, you know, leads to Breonna Taylor's death, before that time, they were not legal. And during this time, during the 1970s, you get immediate and sustained increases in the amount that was being spent on criminal justice. And part of the reason that this happens is not just that the federal government is giving this money, Part of the reason is that, you know, a condition of receiving the grants was that states and localities had to agree to commit a certain amount on their own, too. And they had to agree to continue the programs that the grants were funding. And so it had this path-dependent expansionary quality built in. So there's not sort of one key innovation that happens that changes everything. It's more that a thousand or two thousand different changes across many different states and localities and jurisdictions end up sort of all moving in the same direction. And federal legislation made the most of that increased capacity. When Reagan launches his war on drugs. As a nation, we now acknowledge what Nancy's been saying over the past several years. The drugs give a false high. You've already had a decade of significant investment. You've already had a decade of alteration. You've already had the federal government saying to states, we will pay for up to 75% of your prison construction costs. This bill helps us close rank on those who continue to provide drugs. Arrests, convictions, and prison sentences of sellers and abusers are rising to record levels. Reagan simply could not have launched a war on drugs unless he knew that those institutions were ready to take on all of the new arrests and confinements that were going to come from a massively expanded penalty structure for drug violations. Then there was the crime bill that Bill Clinton signed into law in 1994. The game gets upped one step further with the largest crime bill in history, which is the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. And that authorized $10.8 billion over six years to state and local law enforcement. Today, the bickering stops. The era of excuses is over. The law-abiding citizens of our country have made their voices heard. Never again should Washington put politics and party above law and order. Now, the bulk of that money, about $8.8 billion, goes to fulfilling President Clinton's campaign pledge to provide 100,000 new police officers in the United States. Last year, Republicans and Democrats passed the 100,000 cops bill, 
and I signed it. I made a commitment, a promise to put 100,000 more police on our streets because there is simply no better crime-fighting tool to be found. And so it gets funneled out through the COPS hiring program. But the COPS office in the Department of Justice is only one of several federal agencies that are giving money and equipment to local law enforcement. And other programs start up around this time, including uh, the 1033 program, which is now famously uh, associated with militarism and policing and the defense Authorization Act. So that's a Defense Department program that's uh, shoveling out equipment um, to local police departments. Many of these programs flew under the radar of the general public, but the impact was felt by Black and Brown communities. They bore the brunt of increased policing, tough-on-crime attitudes, and mandatory minimum sentencing policies. Meanwhile, as had happened throughout history, support for some of these programs waxed and then started to wane. If you look at 2000, what you see is this fading support for the federal programs that the Reagan administration and Clinton administration had really built up. There's both fading money going into it because Congress is less interested in funding what became uh, associated with President Clinton and fading support because crime is uh, backing off a little bit and also some backlash. There have been some big lawsuits at this point about racial profiling on the highways um, and there's talk about federal racial profiling statute. The president, in a memorandum to the attorney general, the subject of the memorandum being racial profiling, wrote the following words. I hereby direct you to review the use by federal law enforcement authorities of race as a factor in conducting stops, searches, and other investigative procedures. You see the concern about crime is fading and concern about policing is growing. But then when 9-11 happens, everything is different. Um, Terrorism replaces violent crime as the national public safety crisis. And the federal racial profiling statute never gets passed. And that justifies re-energizing the federal funding to local police. Over the next couple of years, you get tens of billions of dollars being spent on preparing local enforcement to prevent and respond to homeland security events. They're supposed to be now not just crime control and order maintenance, but really the first line of defense against terrorists. And that's a pretty substantial responsibility that changes the way local law enforcement thinks about itself and the way the federal government thinks about them, too. But this changes in August 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri, where in the days after police killed Michael Brown, demonstrators took to the streets to protest police brutality. And then images of a militarized police response were flashed across social media and cable news. When camouflaged officers on the ground are using grenade launchers to fire tear gas into crowds, and those pictures start proliferating on the internet, then people start to pay attention. And the idea that military equipment in general was exacerbating tensions between the police and the community, that starts to really get some public attention. Um, And the Obama administration responds Um, with an executive order that set up new restrictions on the 1033 program. I mean, one problem with the 1033 program, beyond the fact that it's given so much um, military equipment to local police departments, 
first of all, the Defense Logistics Agency is in no position to evaluate whether particular equipment um, should be or shouldn't go to local police departments, or whether it's useful in policing, whether it's more intrusive than it's worth. They're not a civil rights agency or an expert in local law enforcement. They, it, that's not what they do. So as attention comes to the program, President Obama issues this executive order starting a working group, and they start strengthening the oversight of the program. So no longer were they sending out literal tents, which are tracked armored vehicles, grenade launchers, bayonets, and the like. Those became prohibited. And in any case, when President Trump uh, entered office in his first year in office, he issued an executive order rescinding all controls over the program. He is rescinding restrictions from the prior administration that limited your agency's ability to get equipment through federal programs, including life-saving gear. Today, the U.S. federal government contributes billions of dollars for local law enforcement. Some of these grants help fund forensic pathologists or provide bulletproof vests to law officers. Others have what Professor Harmon argues, non-budgetary costs. As the government thinks about whether these programs are successful, whether they're working, they focus on the dollars that the programs cost and then the benefits that they have, either in reducing crime or in one of the benefits they see would be causing arrests and prosecutions, whatever they use to measure the benefits. But what they neglect to consider is that some of these programs actually uh, subsidize and incentivize really intrusive and harmful policing, whether that's additional surveillance or whether it's military equipment that's used to engage in more forceful policing. Those are all intrusions. They're all costs. They're costs to the people involved. They're costs to the community, whether it's harm or fear or arrests. The government, it can actually provide strong incentives, free money to engage in more intrusive policing. And at the same time, if you think about the way we normally check the intrusiveness of policing, there are a couple of basic checks. One is resources. And so now we're eliminating that check. The second is that the local civilian political process has to sign off on the kind of policing that the agency wants to do. Why? Because they fund it. So they sign off in the local budget process. And what many of these programs do is empower chiefs by making them a source of local dollars and bypass those usual ways of holding police accountable. And sometimes it's quite invisible that the police department is getting these outside dollars for especially intrusive policing. Which brings us to what's prompted this current protest movement. You know, there aren't a lot of issues that hundreds of thousands of people have marched in the streets over in the last decade. Policing's really just about it. And so When you think about whether we're getting the policing we want, of course, localities have to start reconsidering for themselves the policing they have, what they want in the future. But the federal government plays an enormous role in both helping and hurting that process. So the the federal government spent billions and billions of dollars um, trying to pump up 
the size and intrusiveness of local law enforcement. But they spend very little money um, trying to build up community policing programs or community input programs or civil rights programs or rethinking public safety from the ground up. And so when we think about the federal role, we have to think first, are we getting our money's worth? Second, is there more we can do to help local communities as they rethink policing um, and look for ways to make it achieve its public safety and order aims and also be responsive and fair to the communities that produce it. This is the core of the idea to defund the police. In the weeks since Minneapolis police officers killed George Floyd, the city council has already voted to disband its police force and to rethink how it looks at public safety from the ground up. People continue to protest against police brutality. And if there is one parallel to be made from past summers of protests, Dr. Veshla Weaver thinks it's this. The several long, hot summers of protests and rebellions in cities across the country during the 1960s, they weren't sparked because of a broad agitation for voting rights. They were sparked because of police brutality. And so one of the interesting things to me to my mind, is that here we've got a major set of struggles and insurgency to check police power. And what happens in the immediate aftermath is what? We expanded police power. Okay. We expanded it by leaps and bounds. We doubled it. Fast forward to today, or even the 90s, right? You know, uprisings around Rodney King. What do we do? We expand funding for police. We expand manpower. Then fast forward again to Ferguson and Baltimore and many other cities across the U.S., right? Chicago, Laquamita. We have a major set of protests around police violence and police choking, maiming, ending Black life. And what do we get? Many of those cities expanded funding for police. And so I think one of the significant things to watch for is whether this moment will yield a pattern that is similar or a pattern that that is disjoint. Is this defund the police call going to become entrenched enough that you get some movement this time? Or if you look at the history, more funding ends up expanding police power, and we might get some procedural improvements, but we certainly don't get the kind that would transform the policing of race-class subjugated communities. That was Veshla May Weaver, the Bloomberg Distinguished Associate Professor of Political Science and Sociology at Johns Hopkins University. We also heard from Rachel Harmon, a professor of law and the director of the Center for Criminal Justice at the University of Virginia. Thanks for listening this week, and please stay safe. This episode was produced by Oluwakemi Aladisui. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. 
Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.